My name is Steve Copper, uh, co-founder and former CEO of CryptAdvisor. I guess I consider myself uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, CryptAdvisor was technically my third endeavor, and you've probably heard of that company. And so uh, I co-founded and, and grew it to the size it is today. Stepped down a little while ago, and now I'm in transition, looking for the next challenge I want to put in front of myself. In my experience, entrepreneurial people either love calling themselves entrepreneurs or they hate it. You seem to be much more of the former rather than the latter. Why are you so quick to describe yourself as an entrepreneur? Oh, I love the idea of building something. And so if I were to use, I'm a business executive, Hey, to me that conjures, uh, hey, you're you're managing something, it's already there, you're trying to make it better. The most enjoyable days I can remember at any of the companies I worked at was when I felt I was creating something new. Either a new company, a new product, a new marketing channel, a new way to reach our customers, a new positioning or something. Nothing wrong with having a great executive team that loves to manage and optimize. And every company has to have a, a lot of that. But I like that initial ideation. I like the creation process. Okay, but you ran TripAdvisor for over 20 years, even took it public. So how does running a public company sync with being an entrepreneur? A great question, and when TripAdvisor was in the early days and successful, and I kind of thought to myself, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grow it probably until there's, I don't know, 100 people, maybe 200 people, then I'll hand over the reins to a more professional manager, and I'll go do something else. And, you know, some of the early folks at TripAdvisor teased me about that as we past the 100 mark and the 200 mark and then the 500 mark and then like, hey Steve, I thought you said you were going to step down to get someone real in the job. And I'm like, aha. But the thing is, I still felt like there was a big new challenge, a big new thing to build. I never thought in those growth years at TripAdvisor that it was, hey, let's just do more of the same. In our category, hey, we started with hotels and reviews, and then we really expanded into a bunch of other categories. We tried our hand at booking hotels ourselves, at being a travel social network, at generating more than just kind of the, the standard textual review, at personalizing the results. And to me, those were new frontiers to conquer, and with the insane number of travelers that the site had on it every single day. It was an amazing playground to be able to come up with the new and improved version. So, and I had always said, look, if the business ever gets to the point where it just needs good management, or it just needs someone to mind the store, or I wake up on a Monday morning and I'm not really excited about something coming up, this week, this month, this quarter. But yeah, that'll be the time when I definitely do need to step aside and go do something else. 22 years later, I had a different reason for stepping aside, but we can get to that. 
and we will get to that because, as you've already heard, this episode of Webmasters is a conversation with Steve Coffer, co-founder and longtime CEO of TripAdvisor. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi there, and welcome to Webmasters. You're listening to the podcast about entrepreneurship, internet history, business, tech companies, you know, all those kinds of good things we can learn by talking with some of the digital age's most successful founders and creators. I'm Aaron Dinan, and while I'm not one of the digital age's most successful founders and creators, uh, not yet anyway, I am a serial entrepreneur, I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I love exploring the world of startups and tech companies in this podcast because it means I get to talk with people like today's guest. We've got Steve Coffer, founder of TripAdvisor, one of the most popular travel resources on the planet. I'm sure you know what it is, but do you know the story of how it was built? Well, you will right after I tell you about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you today with help and support from our partner and sponsor, Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions firm. They help people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and other types of digital assets. That includes things like big popular review websites that get hundreds of millions of visitors a month. In case you happen to have one of those lying around, more likely you have an e-commerce shop, Amazon storefront, Shopify site, domain portfolio, or some other type of online work-from-anywhere digital business that you're running. And if you're thinking of selling it, you should think about talking to the team at Latona's. They have decades of experience helping sell internet businesses, which means they're going to be able to help you through the process and get you a great return on your years of hard work and investment. Alternately, if you're looking to buy an internet business, well, Latona's can help you too. You can start by checking out the Latona's website where you'll find listings for the businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. As you heard at the beginning of this episode, our guest, Steve Coffer, described himself as an entrepreneur, which seemed a bit weird to me when I saw he'd been running TripAdvisor for 22 years. Sure, he started TripAdvisor, but it seems like at some point you're no longer an entrepreneur, right? Aren't you a business executive running a multi-billion dollar public company? I wanted to explore that question a bit, so I started my conversation with Steve trying to figure out how he got to TripAdvisor. Not surprisingly, the journey was indeed a winding and not always successful entrepreneurial journey. I think I discovered computers in like junior high school and there was a teletype that was connected to a mainframe somewhere and you had punch tape and it's like all these super old things that I hope none of your audience actually knows about anymore. But it got me excited about writing the tic-tac-toe program. And then in high school, I had an Apple II computer, and it was uh, not very powerful, but it was good enough to be able to write a simple game on, and you plugged it in, you literally plugged it into your TV, and that, and that was the monitor. And it was building stuff, but not with your hands. It was figuring out how this programming stuff went, assembly language, and it was purely for fun and games. 
I went to college as a uh, as a physics major, actually, and ooh, that that was hard. But it was the computer programming classes that was fun, and lots of people, including my my parents, were saying like, if you're lucky enough to be able to find something you think is fun that somebody will pay you for, I'm like, yeah, that was programming to me, and so that sent me into the the computer science field. And what was so enjoyable to you about computers? It's problem-solving puzzles to get the damn computer to do what you want it to do, what they're trying to tell it to do. And, like, there's no luck involved. You know, teamwork's great, but programming, if you're just writing an app, uh, is a solitary, like, I've got to instruct this machine to do what I want. And when you're done, it's like, I nailed it. I achieved it. Awesome. When you know, later in life when I was starting to write software with the team, it became even more fun to like bat around how you were going to do something like normal teams, like feed off of each other to come up with an even better solution. And then you got to put it to work. And in the beginning, we just took a little piece of the, the problem set, if you will, wrote our code, integrated it in, and then we'd all sit there and try to figure out it's not working. What do we do about it? And I still remember, you know, walking home from the computer lab at five in the morning, like, ooh, I was never a, a morning person, but yeah, sun coming up, not bad. This was after college. But still feeling like, yeah, I got it. I figured it out. And, you know, the challenge starts again the next day, but that was always a lot more satisfying to me than I finished writing a, a paper in school. Like the program when it worked. Check mark done. You can move on. So it sounds like you enjoyed solving complex problems, which I guess is itself an entrepreneurial trait. Uh, when did that interest start to combine with starting companies? Uh, because your first company wasn't TripAdvisor, was it? Uh, so the first company was software development tools, interpreters, compilers, debuggers, linkers, error checkers for obscure computer languages. I mean, popular at the time. But it was absolutely true. If I told somebody what I did in the first company I started out of school, their eyes would glaze over and I could count the number of seconds before the conversation would turn to either sports or weather. Uh, it was just nothing anyone ever wanted to talk about unless you were a computer programmer yourself. Uh, that company had uh, a great ride and then uh, it didn't end so well. Uh, and I was off to go do something new also. Was TripAdvisor next? I'll skip the intermediate uh, second company to talk about TripAdvisor because that's when I'd gotten the entrepreneur bug by then. So I wasn't going to be a programmer for somebody else. I was going to go start some new company. And the one requirement, and this was 1999, was that it had to be internet-based. Like This was clearly taken over the world. It wasn't the beginning of the internet. It was actually very close to the dot-com bust. But uh, yeah, I, I wanted to take advantage of this massive transformation, but I didn't know what or where or how or, uh, you know, I could program, I could manage. Uh, I'd never started a company before, but I was willing to take that gamble. 
and uh, cast around for ideas, came up with a bunch, and TripAdvisor turned out to be the best of the bunch. And so that's what uh, what I settled on, called a handful of folks that I've worked with before, said, come on out to Boston. I uh, got this great idea, and uh, a couple of them said yes. And so uh, can I ask, where did the idea for TripAdvisor come from? I, when I was uh, still working for the other company, I was planning a vacation. I didn't take a lot of vacation. And so actually pretty important to me that I would have a good time. So we went to a travel agency for a week-long vacation. Agencies uh, recommended, uh, again, this was 98 99 that time frame. Uh, hey, try a place called Playa del Carmen, which is just south of Cancun uh, in Mexico. And we said, sounds great. And where should we stay? Travel agent gave us three brochures. If you've ever seen brochures of resorts in Mexico, like they're really cool. They all look amazing. And she graciously let us know that one was inexpensive, the other moderate priced, and the other was more on the luxury end. So I'm like, great, I'm staying at the cheap one, okay, dear? And my wife turned to me with a, uh, well, let's let's check it out first on the internet. I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, went on the internet, tried our best to search for interesting information about these hotels, because we had three names, three recommendations. And at the end of the day, couldn't find anything other than a toll-free number or as a place to go make a reservation for the hotel. That's not what I wanted. I wanted the real truth, the good, the bad. What did other people say? What were the reviews out there? Was this rated by any famous people? Who could tell me other than this one travel agent? that I kind of suspected had never been to any of these properties. Like, where should I stay? Suffice to say, I couldn't find much, and I ended up doing Boolean query logic on various search engines to finally find the nugget of information. My wife is going like, oh, my God, what's he doing? And I'm like, I was obsessed with finding something useful. I eventually succeeded and on that cheap hotel, which is where I wanted to stay, I found what I gently refer to as the pictures of the back of the hotel, not the front, i.e. the ones that aren't Photoshopped, but are showing what the beach is really like when there's a bunch of people on there, because some very kind soul had written a travel blog about his trip to Mexico and had posted some pictures. And, oh yeah, no, we didn't want to stay there. It was like, I'm sure it would have been okay, but it was not our idea of the nice getaway vacation. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I found that. Now let's mentally upgrade ourselves to that mid-range property, went on the trip, had a great time, came back, and my wife had said, uh, you know, you spend an awful lot of time looking for that uh, trip. She's the one that went to business school, not me. Maybe there's a business there to help people plan trips based upon their real reputations, not the Photoshop brochures. And I said, yeah, maybe, who knows? I don't know. I'm like, I remember not being excited about the idea, uh, but 
like within a year, no better idea had surfaced. And so that was the genesis of creating the site that would help travelers have a great trip. Now, is that idea that you were originally, it sounds like, I guess you would say, lukewarm to, was that idea the TripAdvisor we all know today with lots of user reviews? Because that seems like at least a somewhat unique approach to be taken back then, no? Yeah, so ours was uh, definitely a rocky road. So we had this vision for we're going to let the community speak. We're going to gather reviews. And we weren't the first review site by any stretch, but we were the first that kind of organized a travel review site around where you were going to go as opposed to just reading stories of lots of travelers. So if you wanted a trip to Boston and you wanted to stay in downtown Boston, here were the list of hotels. And hey, we needed content. We needed people's opinionated thoughts on each and every hotel. The business model was not going to be direct to consumer because that was going to be really expensive and the dot-com bust had already happened. This was in the year 2000. Eyeballs, like, yeah, those sites were going out of business. Uh, Sites that just had a lot of eyeballs but didn't have a way to make money. So we were in the business-to-business category. Our plan was to build a vertical search engine for travel and then license it to other online travel sites, tourist boards, search engines. So anyone who already had the eyeballs, who already had the visitors, and wanted to do a travel-related search would get travel-related results. They would make an API call to us. We would return all the great content that we found. They would display it, and we'd get paid a penny a query or whatever the monetization model could be. And we went about building a big database of everything traveled. Needless to say, that doesn't sound like TripAdvisor at all today, so, so things had to change. Would you mind then giving us a sort of high level walkthrough about how the company evolved into what we're all more familiar with? Yeah, so, so the timeline we started, uh, we launched the company in February of 2000. We launched the kind of demo site in October of 2000, which was like our display of information, but we never meant for people to go to it. We just needed something to demo for our prospective clients. And we went off to talk to Yahoo and Lycos and Expedia and Travelocity and Orbitz and Preview Travel and all the travel companies that were around back then, as well as American Airlines and the travel companies that might want to help their audience plan out a trip. And uh, we spent from October through June of the following year not getting anywhere with anyone. We could get meetings everywhere, but nobody seemed willing to pay us for these kind of search results. We eventually, like uh, towards the summer of 2001, uh, struck a deal with Lycos, which was at the time the number three search engine around. They had a lot of traffic and they had asked us, like, hey, can you power the travel directory part of our Lycos travel? And 
So, hey, great. So we were actually rendering the pages. They would sell all the ads on the pages, and you could go to Boston, you could see a list of hotels. We covered the entire U.S. You'd go to Boston, see a list of hotels, pick on the best hotel, see the content that was written there, and like those would pay us which, uh, a 50-50 red share on all of the ads that they sold on that page. We thought that was a great model. Again, 50%, I don't have to do any of the selling or marketing or customer acquisition. Cool. Uh, that summer came along. It was a quarterly deal. Uh, oh, September 11th hit. September 11, 2001. Traumatic for the country, for the world to some degree. And if you were in travel, super traumatic in terms of all travel halted. Uh, it was like people and companies were fearful they wouldn't exist anymore. And we were a budding travel company that hadn't achieved any level of product market fit. We had just signed up our first customer. So with that as a backdrop, we're looking at our first royalty check from Lycos, which, you know, our, our burn rate was about 70000 a month. So revenue was zero, expenses were 70000 pretty low for a company doing what we were. We were, relatively speaking, proud of that. And we didn't know that Lycos, that the check would be, a, you know, some people thought the check might be a couple hundred thousand and that would cover our cost. I wasn't one of those. I thought it might be around like 50,000, 100,000. So if we could just get two or three more clients, at least that's what I remember presenting to the board. I don't, I'm not sure this one deal is going to do it, but if we can get a couple more, we're a break even and then away we can go. Bottom line, the check was $500. The royalties for the entire quarter 50% of everything Lycos sold was $500. I was flabbergasted. I called up Lycos. I'm like, what the heck? You know, it must be a typo. No, sorry, Steve. I'm like, but you guys are selling ads all over the page. I'm like, well, if you look closely, those ads tend to be house ads, i.e. $0 ads advertising other like those properties. So my great royalty of 50% was getting 50% of $0. And so that's why it wasn't amounting to anything. And if Lycos had a real client, they were putting that real client's ad on a page that they got 100% of the revenue on. So they felt bad because we had higher expectations. They had tried to dampen our expectations. So I, have, I don't hold anything against Lycos, but it was clearly like the nail in that business coffin. Like, fine, B2B ain't going to work. Have to go do something different. How'd you figure out the new business model? And uh, how'd you figure it out so quickly? Well, we had generated a bit of traffic to our website because search engines had found us. They were generating some traffic. Like, all right, let's go figure out how we're going to survive because it looks like we're going to go out of business in about six months. That was how much money we had left in the bank. And through dint of, we're just going to try almost everything. And happy to go into all the different stuff we tried, but we eventually landed upon the extremely effective cost per click advertising, which in simple terms is if you're looking at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in New York City, we're going to show you a picture of the Marriott, a couple of reviews, or as many as we have, and then a link that says, do you want to check price and availability? 
or the Marriott. But you think about it is exactly what most travelers want to do when they're looking at the hotel that they think they like. Is it available? Can I afford it? You click on that link. We sent you over to Expedia. X percent of those clicks actually booked a hotel. Expedia was more than happy to share the profit they made on that hotel back to us as the lead generation. And voila, we had a great monetization vehicle. Just in time, because we were about to go out of business. Uh, and then, hey, we just we, we scaled that B2C business as quickly as we could. Looking at it from the outside and thinking about the years during which you were doing all the early stuff for TripAdvisor, it seems like on some level you maybe got really lucky with timing, uh, particularly in terms of that being the start of search engine optimization. I mean, I would think a site like TripAdvisor would just have some killer long tail SEO because it would be covering so many relatively small and niche searches. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, very astute. Yes. So we had the long tail in terms of we started in the US, but then we expanded globally. So like we have some terms on every single city, hotels in Boston, hotels in Mumbai, hotels in Tokyo. Then we have restaurants in then we have the name of every single hotel in our database, the name of every single restaurant. So if you're searching for the Marriott Marquis in New York, a lot of time you go to Google or AltaVista or Yahoo or whoever it was, type in Marriott Marquis Hotel New York, because you just want to go to their website. And there you would see our results that said, read reviews and compare prices on the Marriott Marquis. And even if that result was after the Marriott Marquis website, which is where you wanted to go in the first place, well, who doesn't want to be able to compare prices and get reviews just to make sure? So they'd click on our link, come to our site, and we'd show the reviews. And if users still like that hotel, they would click on our Expedia link and go to, or they click on our Marriott link and go to Marriott, and Marriott would pay us for that lead. Or they didn't like the Marriott, the reviews really sucked. And they went back to our list and chose a different property and went through the process again. So, again, it was very effective because we had a long tail of, of search. And all of the other big travel agencies at the time, those sites weren't crawlable by the search engines. So they were dynamically generated. It was very early days of SEO. Yahoo was the big player, not Google. People caught up pretty quick, but because we had no legacy, we were a new company. Hey, of course we're going to build with URLs that search engines could crawl. And you know, we had a, a nice head start on, on almost all the other travel companies. What that doesn't explain, though, is how you got the reviews. I mean, in order to have all those long tail SEO pages, don't you also need reviews for everything? How'd you get so many reviews early on? Uh, excellent question. The proverbial chicken and egg question in any two-sided marketplace. The way we did it is we crawled other websites like Lonely Planet or Fedellers or Promers or Let's Go or you know the back issues of the New York Times or Travel and Leisure Magazine places that would already have some level of content published on the internet, 
available for free. So we could crawl it. And then for that, uh, I'll stick with the uh, Marriott Marquis Hotel in New York City example. Before we had a single review, we had a link to read the review of that hotel that Promers had put up on their website. And we, we took the title and said, read the review on Promers, and we linked over to Promers. We didn't like that per se, because we were sending somebody to some other website, but those guys didn't complain because they liked the free traffic, and it made our site valuable before we had reviews. And then eventually we put a really big button that said, write a review, leave your own thoughts. And, you know, not very many people did. But if you have a big enough denominator, i.e. if you have enough traffic and only a couple of percent leave a review, it'll start to build. If you think of a hotel like the Marquis, it's got 500 rooms. So there's actually a lot of turnover every week of people who have something to say if we can reach them. I know from experience that getting people to post reviews is really hard. For example, you know, I've got plenty of listeners for this podcast, but I struggle getting them to post reviews. Uh, do you have any advice or could you share any strategies you used to increase the percentage of site visitors who'd be willing to then go on and spend time leaving reviews? Uh, sure. On its own, it kind of stayed constant. I mean, the percentage of reviewers grew a little bit as more and more people got comfortable writing reviews, Amazon was helping us, eBay was helping us. It was the whole, yes, and, and your voice can be can be heard. Uh, we found the language we used to be pretty important. Like, hey, help us have more reviews was not nearly as persuasive as help a fellow traveler have a great trip. Nobody wanted to help. TripAdvisor become a big company, but people really like the reviews and the info that they found for free. And so tugging on the pay it forward turned out to be a, a pretty good strategy. Then we gamified it a little bit. Hey, uh, you wrote your first review. Congrats. You're two reviews away from the traveler badge. And then if you got the traveler badge, you were only three reviews away from the senior traveler badge and, you know, a whole bunch of levels. Like, remember, you can write a review on anything, including all your local restaurants, including any place you stayed at within the past year. So even though you already wrote the review of the hotel on your trip, because that's what you used TripAdvisor for in the first place, after you wrote that review, we're like, hey, tell us something more. Tell us something about your own hometown. Have you eaten at any of these restaurants? Click here, write the review. Uh, and then we added uh, a little uh, thank you vote. So when users, it's on the site today, when users look at a review, and regardless of whether it's well-written, uh, if the user finds it valuable, they can click helpful. So that triggers an email, a message off to the author that says, hey, somebody found your review helpful. And you'd be stunned, I was stunned, at how that resonated, where like, I wrote something, it went off into the ether, we told you it was posted, 
And then you get a little email that says, hey, somebody found your review helpful. 16 people read it in the past week. That makes you feel good. Makes you more likely to write another review on the next trip. It reminds you that we exist because maybe you haven't traveled in a year. So all sorts of good things by saying thank you, thank you again. Hey, you want to write a couple more? And that built up our, you know, the number of kind of powered reviewers, the people that just are now in a habit of reviewing most places they eat, most places they go. And they're the backbone of the content. And I guess if I'm going to talk with you about reviews, I have to ask how you dealt with fake reviews and things like that. Specifically, I'm thinking it seems like TripAdvisor would have had a system that's pretty easy for companies to game to their benefit and or the detriment of their competitors. Yeah, uh, probably one of the most popular questions I got from the press during my, my tenure there. The short version of the answer is you really want to try to understand it from TripAdvisor's perspective. If these reviews were gained and people no longer trusted the site to actually represent public opinion, people wouldn't go back. Like, oh, TripAdvisor steered me wrong. And we wouldn't have a business. So to say that we took it seriously is actually an understatement. We we're like, we have to be best in class at this. We know the other guys in the space aren't best in class. And so okay, we hired people from uh, credit card fraud departments. We looked at like who else has experience of doing this. You know, we do take advantage of the fact that sometimes the owners who I'll give you a simple case where in a particular city, one account has written 20 negative reviews of hotels in that account and one five-star review. Yeah, you think that sends us a little signal that says maybe somebody is trying to scam our system? Sure. And really easy to detect. And of course, so, so we catch it. Then there were companies that were much later in the history, uh, they would post notes that say uh, on, on the sort of the darker side of the web, hey, for 10 bucks, we'll write, you know, 10 positive reviews on, on your property or your restaurant. Uh, so it's cool. Our team would go sign up for those things. And we'd feed them a bunch of fake properties because we have some fake properties that are just meant as traps on the site. And uh, we'd see what those accounts are, and we'd go penalize them. And, and we came up with a badging system that if we had warned a hotel or a restaurant or attraction, and they continued to persist in trying to scam us, the threat was we're going to put a big red badge on your page. We're not going to take you off the site, but we're going to put a big red badge that says, we have reason to believe that this property is going around with the review system. Well, that's going to kill their business, right? You don't know that for a fact, but just consumer behavior. If you look at that, you're like, hey, I can't trust this. Let me go look elsewhere. And so our algorithms detected a ton of the fraud. The human team that backed up the algorithms for the escalation cases, the community can report any review that smells funky. Community often has, has a nose for that. It just means we take a second look. 
the traps that we set for the professional review writers has gotten us to the point where we issue a public transparency report where we tell you how many fake reviews we found, what's going on, all the transparency report for a reason. We're sharing all, all that we have. And the bottom line, 22 years later, it's a very trustworthy site. So it works. I'm not saying there isn't a fake review on the site, but when you have 200 reviews of a restaurant, when you have a thousand reviews of the hotel, no one review matters at all. It's the collective wisdom of the crowds, which turns out to be pretty damn accurate. Okay, that makes sense. And, and I'm sure review quality was, was probably a never-ending challenge. And, you know, because it's such a big and messy topic from a logistical perspective, maybe I'll go ahead and switch gears a bit. We've talked about how you evolved the company's product and offerings, but what about the business? From my research, it looks like you actually sold TripAdvisor pretty early on to IAC. Is is that correct? <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, candidly, I did not expect to be at the company for, for that long. When we were bought uh, in 2004 by Interactive Corp, they paid a big amount in cash, and that was a fabulous, you know, champagne day for all of the founders and employees and investors. And they had said, "Hey, we want to leave you as this standalone division. You're going to be reporting in this part of the work structure, but really just keep doing what you're doing." And I nodded politely. I'm like, "Okay." I don't believe you, but that sounds great. And, you know, the check cashed. And I'm like, okay, what's the real scoop? And they said, that is the real scoop. Keep growing. I'm like, really? Well, yeah. Okay. So we were already very profitable, so I didn't need investment dollars from anyone. And we just started expanding. We went international big time. We doubled down on our uh, marketing programs. We built out new functionality. And it was super exciting because we were growing, we were hiring, I was in charge, I had a great team in place. And my boss expected reports, but they were kind of like what I was already providing to my board. So I looked at this and said, pretty good gig. You're growing up fast-growing, cool internet company, an exciting category. What's not to like about this job? They're not making me travel every week to New York or or later uh, Seattle and talk about 20-year strategic planning that I could never stomach. It was go run the business. A year after we were bought, we were spun into the Expedia group, uh, which was all of the travel holdings. And that was really nice for me because I got to join a management team as a peer being the CEO of one of the travel companies and get to learn their perspectives on everything. It was business travel. It was cruise. It was uh, discount travel as well as Expedia and Hotels.com to general travel agents who are also big clients of ours. But I still got to run the independent company. I didn't have to deal with PR. I didn't, I, I didn't have to deal with investor PR. I didn't have to deal with tax. I didn't have to deal with a handful of stuff that I didn't want to deal with anyway. So, and my bosses would ask like, hey, how's it going? We love you. We want you to stay. I'm like, I'll let you know if it ever gets too bureaucratic or 
or do whatever for me, but I'm having a great time. And so that continued. The next big transition was when we spun out of Expedia. So now I'm a public company CEO. I need to have a CFO, investor relations. But I, you know, when asked, hey, do you want to do this? I'm like, sure, but just understand I'm not going to run the company on a quarter-by-quarter profit basis. I'm going to run the company the way I have been running the company, which is, yeah, there's a quarterly report card, but I'm doing it for growing the company in the long term. And the board said, yes, that's exactly what we want. So I did some investor conferences. We did learn how to do an earnings call, took a bunch of black from investors at various times, but I didn't have to bend because I felt what we were doing was right for the company. It did very well. That was a great strategy. Google got into the market a little bit later, which caused us some very significant headwinds. It's very difficult to compete with Google. But you know, by that time, we're used to being a public company. So being public or not didn't matter. Uh, and then, yeah, just, just to kind of close off the kind of vector of why I stayed into the why I left, I realized I had been 22 years with the company and it was a fabulous ride. I love the people there. The company has a ton of potential going forward. I want to go do one more new thing, not in travel, but one more new thing because, uh, hey, I'm, I'm turning 60 or that point I had turned 60. I'm like, I'm going to do something. I better start. And I always had an idea that I would do one more thing. And though I don't know what that one more thing is, dramatic pause. I hope to find something. I hope I'll love it because I left a great job in a company with a ton of great things going for. This is the part of the story where, for me, it becomes clear that, yes, Steve is indeed an entrepreneur. Why? Well, because Steve was running a big, successful, multi-billion dollar public company. As he was getting into his 60s, he could have decided to, you know, take all the money he surely earned and go retire. But no. Instead, he said, oh my gosh, I'm 60. I've still got to build something else. So I'm going to quit this amazing job that I love and go find another company to build. That's crazy. Who does that? I'll tell you who. A real entrepreneur. Someone who isn't just motivated by self-interest, but someone who's motivated about solving difficult problems and helping people. You can tell that's the kind of person Steve is, not just because he left TripAdvisor and is trying to start something new, but also because of how he reflects on the legacy of what he's already done. I love the fact that we helped millions of small businesses for free advertise their product and services based upon not how much they could spend with us, but how well of a job they were doing in the hospitality industry. And there's a ton of people that have come up to me over the years saying, oh my goodness, TripAdvisor, you really helped make my business. And I'm like, you built a great business. You were a small B&B owner in South Africa. You were a small restaurant in Boston. Uh, we just helped amplify what all of your uh, clients were saying about you in a way that was practical. And it didn't cost them a cent. And great for business, great for the consumer. 
then it's special to be able to say that you touched the lives of you know, a few billion people. I'll never have a real count, but for the past decade, TripAdvisor was doing 400 million unique users a month. So a lot of duplication, a lot of devices, you know, safe to say that, you know, a double-digit portion of the world touched TripAdvisor, one of our many international points of sale at some point, and found something useful, however small it, it might have been. Help them make a great trip, help them have a delicious meal in their hometown, added a, a, a tiny bit to the happiness quotient of the world. And at a scale, that's like, the, I'll never be able to top. So. I'm guessing Steve is referring to an Oxford economic study from 2018 that showed TripAdvisor was responsible for influencing roughly 10% of global spending on travel. That's a lot of impact. To be fair, when I dug up the study, I couldn't help but notice it was created in partnership with TripAdvisor, which means it might have a twinge of bias. But still, it's hard to argue the premise is too far off point. After all, I've seen TripAdvisor stickers on restaurants down the street from my house, on the other side of the world, and just about everywhere in between. I'm guessing you have too. And that's why, well, Steve is definitely one of the most impactful and influential entrepreneurs we've spoken with here on Webmasters. I hope you enjoyed hearing his story. If you'd like to see what he decides to build next, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Coffer. You can follow us too. We're at Webmasters Pod. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about startups, business, and entrepreneurship that you can find over on my website. It's AaronDinan.com. I want to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull together this episode of Webmasters. And I want to thank our sponsor, Latonas, for their continued support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. As I wrap up this episode, I'm going to take a lesson I just learned from our guest. I'm going to ask you to leave a review for Webmasters on your podcasting app of choice, but don't do it for me. That would be selfish. Go do it to help all those other people in the world who are desperately in search of a quality podcast. Think of how much value you're going to bring to them when they start listening to Webmasters episodes and discover all the incredible entrepreneurship content we've got right here. Did it work? Are you eagerly pulling up Webmasters on your podcasting app to leave a review? I sure hope so. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. We'll have that out for you very soon. Until then, well, <laughs> I guess it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs>